0: Y'all thank Cindy and Lisa for us. Great job, y'all. I love that. And we do want to make a point of telling stories that are just kind of daily life sorts of stories because we live daily lives, yes? One of the most important things is I think sometimes we get it in our head that the stories God is telling are the stories of someone else who seems to be doing something else that seems to be more significant than whatever it is he has us doing. But that is just a lie. Because God's telling a story through your life. And as Cindy said, getting your radar up and being able to see what He is doing in the day-to-day to to take joy and delight in it, be intentional in it, uh, is a part of accessing that story for His sake and for His purpose. Yes, church? So let me tell you, part of my day today as uh, one of the fun parts of my day today as uh, a dad of young kids, is I get to play games that uh, were awesome to play when I was a kid and now I get an excuse to play them again. It would have been awkward in my, like, when I was like 25 if my buddies and I had been playing like Red Light, Green Light, you know, down the street. But I love Red Light, Green Light. Uh, I also, you know, love a little Duck, Duck, Goose. Anybody? Duck, Duck, Goose is a classic. If you get a chance, play it, Right. Uh, I also, this is probably my favorite one to do around the house is Simon Says. Everybody know Simon Says? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so will you humor me? Let's do a little Simon Says here, just real quick, because it's a lot of fun, okay? So I won't make you stand. You can stay seated in your chair. So let's do this. Simon Says, raise your right hand. Lower your right hand. Oh, come on. That was way too fast. Simon Says, raise your left hand. Did you put your right hand down already? Good job, they're both up. Some of you, I see that my Messiah students are doing better than the rest of you <laughs> because they're very used to, closer to that stage of life, and very used to doing this. Um, put your right hand down, put your left hand down. Yeah, none of it, none of it. Simon Says put both hands down. Awesome job, all right. So, you know, here's the funny thing about that. Like uh, when we play Simon Says, The point of being Simon is to try and trick my kids, right? I mean, I'm trying to get them to not follow through. But if you had to summarize the point of Simon Says as the person playing, in one sentence, how might you summarize? Just think about that for a second. If if someone said, describe the point of Simon Says to me, how would you say it? Perhaps you might say, the point is to do what Simon says, yes? Yes or to obey Simon. Now, the game comes with all kinds of tricks, right? So did I say Simon, did I not say Simon? Uh, It comes with like, I'm gonna go fast, I'm gonna go slow, I'm gonna try and get you to forget like that you're supposed to keep this one, keep obeying this one, uh, even while you start obeying the next one. And here's what I think. Uh, As I looked at our passage this week, God is gonna talk to us a lot about obeying. And I think that one of the things that we treat our relationship with God like is a lot like Simon says. That there are perhaps certain commands we, sh- we will obey if he just hits that right trigger phrase for us, then yes, we will obey. Because I want to, or because it makes me feel good, or because it seems like something I should obey. It makes logical sense to me, right? And sometimes if those things aren't in place, then I'm not gonna obey because Simon didn't say, right? Or perhaps, perhaps maybe, maybe your experience has been that you think uh, obeying God is a lot like Simon says because he's trying to trick you into getting you to make a misstep in obeying him. And, you know, he's going to make it really hard. He's going to try and get you to do what I just did and be like, nope, did you keep your right hand up even when you put your left hand, all that sort of stuff. And so we, we treat obeying God, I think, a lot like playing Simon Says. Now. Here's what I want to tell you. Uh, The point of Simon Says, that the point is to obey what Simon says is very much exactly the same point as having a relationship with God. The point is to obey what God says, or at least one of the major points of having a relationship with God is that we would obey what he says. Right? But Our lives and our obedience to the Lord is not like Simon says in that he's trying to make it tricky or hard or that there are certain commands that we obey when he hits that right trigger phrase for us or gives us something that logically we like to obey. And then these other commands, we don't so much need to obey because he didn't say Simon says or God says or whatever that trigger that you think perhaps is, but that all of God's commands are to be obeyed as we look at Isaiah 48, if you got your Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah 48. So we're going to look at today. And we're going to make our way through the chapters kind of systematically, bit by bit. And what you'll see is that we're going to see this, this word here, or we're going to see it sometimes listen. Uh, we're going to see it translated a couple different ways. But it's this Hebrew word called Shema. Everyone say Shema. shema. It's just kind of fun to say, right? So Shema is usually translated into your English as hear. And so you're going to find that phrase a lot. It's going to be 10 times in 16 verses in this chapter. It's going to be repeated over and over and over again. But here's the important thing to know about this word is that when God uses this word, he doesn't just mean I want you to hear what I am saying. What he means is I want you to hear. And like in Simon Says, I want you to obey. I want you to do. In fact, what he's going to uh, communicate to us is that you have not truly heard until you have obeyed. So for instance, if I were to say to my daughters, I want you to go upstairs and I want you to make your beds and clean up the floor in your room and get everything off the floor. And then if they were to continue at that point to say, uh, "You know, I'm just gonna sit here and keep reading or keep watching a show or keep doing whatever it is I was doing. And then five minutes later, I check back and they were still doing that thing. I would say, did you hear what I said? And they would say, they could say, yes, dad, we heard you, right? And in our normal sense of thinking, they, could, they would be right. Like, yes, we heard what you said. We chose not to do it, right? Uh, but in God's economy, when you look at the scriptures and when he gives a command or he gives the statement, I want you to hear me, what he means is, I want you to hear and then live in light of what you have heard. In other words, I want you to hear and obey. So much so that you cannot say you have heard until you have obeyed. You with me? Okay, so that's what God is getting at in Isaiah chapter 48. So the, the point of the text is actually really simple. It's God wants his people to obey him, right? God wants his people to obey him. And let's, uh, let's look at it here in just a moment now, but I want you to, um, well, actually, I'll get at that in just a second. Let's look at verses one through two. And like I said, we're just gonna take it bit by bit. So look at Isaiah 48, verses one and two. He's gonna kind of describe the problem for us. So he says, hear this, O house of Jacob. So there it is, right? Shema. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by, my, by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. Now, so far, so good, right? What he's saying is you are known by my name. The other nations look around and they say, aha, that, those people are, are followers of this God, right? And so he's saying that's good. But then he says this, the next phrase, but not in truth or Right? For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So here's what he's saying in verses one and two, and he's going to say it again later on in the text. But what he's essentially communicating to us is that my people give all the appearances of being mine. They wear the label of being mine, but they have not borne that label in truth or in right, he says, which is to say they are not in their hearts truly mine because they have not done what? what he commanded in the first verse. Hear, O Israel. Hear, in other words, obey. I want you to obey me. And when you have obeyed me, that's when you are my people in truth and in right. So he's framing the problem for us that is going on with the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. And he's saying to them, look, I I want you to obey. And you, I mean, look, you probably don't have to stretch too far to maybe think this through into our own current context, right? that we can wear the label of being a follower of God, we can wear the label of being a Christian, but not have much obedience in our lives, right? In fact, Romans 6 talks about this exact problem. Paul is talking about it. And there's a whole group of people who seem to be arguing that, you know what, it's a great idea to not obey God because when we don't obey, God displays grace. And when He displays grace, He gets glory for that. So hey, let's just keep disobeying. And Paul's response is to say, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 right? That's, what, that's foolishness. The heart that has been captured by the grace of God doesn't say, let me keep disobeying so that more grace can be poured out so that he can get more glory. The heart that has received grace says, oh, let me now obey the one who has given me that grace. So it's not just a problem in Isaiah 48. It's a problem in Romans chapter six. And guess what? It's a problem right here today, right? Where we recognize that, obedience is challenging. Now here's the thing. Obedience is hard. Just think for a moment. Like if you've, maybe, maybe you're here for the first time and maybe you've, you've uh, not read through the Bible and so you're unfamiliar. But let me just kind of give you a heads up that as you, we'd highly encourage you to do that as you start doing it. One of the things you'll find is that there are a lot of commands that God gives us in the Bible that he wants us to obey, right? Is that right, church? And if you've read it, I've read it, right? And it seems like there's a pretty good number of commands. So Just think about the challenge that it can be to obey God sometimes because he gives us commands about the way we should be in every relationship that we're in, right? As a husband to my wife, I'm to love her in a certain way. Right, As a wife to a husband, I'm to love my husband in a certain way. As a father or as a mother, I am to love my children in a certain way. As a son or as a daughter, I am to behave towards my parents in a certain way that I honor them. And it's not just in my relationships, right? It's in my thought life. Like where do I set my thoughts and do I take those captive and do I allow them to dwell on things they shouldn't dwell on? Or with, I look, my, look at with my eyes. Where am I allowing my gaze to go? What am I looking at and pondering, right? So it's my thoughts, it's my eyes, it's my tongue. What do I say and what do I not say for those of us who talk too much, right? Like it's actually saying I should, I should have not said that. Right? So there's all these categories that God gives us where he says, I, I want you to obey me in this. And he doesn't just limit it to our words. He doesn't just limit it to our thoughts. He doesn't just limit it to what we look at. He even gets to the level of our emotions. And he says, I want you to take captive your emotions and guide them according to the truth. I want you to live out of the truth uh, of who I am. And I want your emotions to even to be subject to that. Would you agree that obedience can seem daunting sometimes? yeah. So now here's the thing, because God knows that and because he knows we are, a, we are um, part of a history, a long history of God's people who have found it a challenge to obey him at points. Because of that, he is so good to give us a great variety of reasons why we should obey him. Now, it would be well within God's right, I think you might agree, <clears throat> to say, I'm God, therefore obey. And we would all probably recognize that logically that's consistent and it makes sense. And there are points where God says that. There are points where He says, I am God and therefore you need to obey. And that's true and it's fair enough. But God does more than that. That's what we're gonna see in Isaiah 48. He does more than just say to us, I'm God therefore obey because He is gracious and understands that we, we have challenges. We are obedience challenged, yes? And because we are obedience challenged, we just sang it, by the way, if you didn't notice it, we sang in the very first hymn that we sang, come thou fount of every blessing. The thing we sang was prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Did you realize what you were singing when you sang that? What you were saying is I'm obedience challenged, right? That's me. And so we recognize that and that hymn's really old, which you know what that tells me, the person who wrote it recognized that was a problem back then too. And Isaiah 48 tells me it was a problem back then. So we are part of this history of people who hopefully want to obey God, know we should obey God, and yet find it challenging to do so. And so God in his mercy doesn't just say, I am God, therefore obey. He gives us, a, he gives us and unpacks for us all these reasons to compel us to obey. So that's what we're gonna look at today. I wanna give you seven reasons, seven reasons why you should obey God, okay? Okay. So that's what we're gonna do. Seven reasons why you should obey God as we move through from Isaiah 48, as we move through the text. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. I find it remarkable. We'll spend a little extra time on this one and then we'll hit the other ones a little bit faster. The first one is he gladly tells us about our future in him. He gladly tells us about our future in him. So look at verses three through eight. They say this. The former things... I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. That is an awesome description, by the way. If you ever get in a fight with your spouse, just describe them that way the next time they're stubborn. See how that goes. Your neck is an iron sinew, honey. And your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Well, that's fun. So here's what he's saying in verses 3 through 8. Now he's talking in this context. He's returning to a theme that if you've been with us in the series, you might recognize, right? One of the themes has been, as he looks at these idols that are being worshipped, and he says, one of the reasons that you should know that they are idols and not the true God, and I am the true God, is that I can tell you what will happen in the future. And so he's saying that to the people over and over again, like, I control the future, I can tell the future, and these idols cannot. So he's just returning to that theme again and he's reminding them of that fact. Now, in this context, what that means is he's saying to the people of Israel and of Judah that you are living in exile now in Babylon, but I am going to rescue you and deliver you. Now, again, remember, Isaiah is writing these words a hundred plus years in advance of this actually occurring, of this deliverance actually occurring. Right. And so this hasn't happened. The exile has not even happened yet when he's writing this. So not only have they not been delivered from exile, they haven't gone into exile yet. And Isaiah is writing about it, saying it's going to occur. And then this is how God's going to deliver you from it. So he's telling the future and saying, this is one of the reasons you can know that I'm the true God and the gods of these other nations, these idols are not. Now, I don't know if you noticed, he said while he was talking about this, The reason I'm doing this is because I don't want you to give credit to other things or other people, what he calls their idols. I don't want you to give credit to anyone else for what it is that I'm doing. So I'm gonna tell you about it in advance so that you can know that it's me and not something else or someone else that's doing it. Now, here's the thing. You and I are sitting thousands of years in the future and we're looking at this and we're saying, oh yes, look at everything God said he did. He said he was going to bring Cyrus, and he brought him. He said he was going to send him into exile, and he did. He said he was going to take them out of exile, and he did. And he said he was going to do this, and he said he was going to do that, and he did. So we look back at it, and we go, oh, look at God's faithfulness. But think for a moment about the people who've received what Isaiah wrote. What was he saying to them? He wasn't saying One of the reasons you should obey is because you should see my faithfulness in the past. Although he said that in previous chapters, what he's saying here is not that. What he's saying is you should obey because I'm telling you what I'm going to do in the future. And the choice that these people who received this message had to make was would they believe that what God said he would do, he would do. Would he fulfill the promise of the future that he is making to them? And that's exactly how God is trying to motivate them to obedience. He's motivating them. He's giving them a reason. Reason number one in the text to obey God is that he does not hesitate to tell them about a great future that he has prepared for them. The deliverance that he's going to work for them. Now, let me tell you, there's two reasons why that should prompt us to want to obey. Just think about it for a moment, right? The first reason is so powerful and it's really the center of the whole gospel The reason that if God tells us about a future uh, that he has prepared for us that is so remarkable and that he he promises that future, if he declares it and tells us it will come to pass and you notice that there wasn't anything in there about this will come to pass because you're going to be so faithful, Israel. In fact, we have historical evidence that Israel and Judah were not very faithful during their time in exile. And if you notice at the end of verse eight, what he said, because I have known since before birth, you are what? treacherous and a rebel. So he's not basing it upon their faithfulness. So what is this promise of a better future, of a great future? What's it based upon? It's based on grace. And it's based on his merit, not the merit of the people to whom the promise is being given. And the right response to grace, church, the right response to these amazing promises that God would say, oh, I've prepared a future for you, And it's not because you're gonna be so faithful that I'm gonna bring it about. It's because I'm faithful. It's because I give grace. The right response to that is to say, I wanna obey, right? I want so much to obey a God who would make a promise like that in spite of my treacherousness, in spite of my lack of faithfulness that you would do this. It means that these promises are given by grace and that is the heart of the gospel. Don't you see it? The heart of the gospel is not. Come and obey for long enough and God will count Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. The promise of the gospel is come and receive the free gift of the blood of Jesus to cover your sins and to purchase new life for you. And all you need to do is have faith. Just believe. Just place the full weight of your life upon him and say, I am yours and you are mine. I want what you have to give and you can receive it. And then the right response is to say, and now let me obey because you are a good master and a good Lord and a good father. And it brings me pleasure to obey one who would give me such, great, such a great future. Now the second thing, so the first way that that promise of a great future that he talks about and tells us about, the first thing it does is it goes, oh, it's all by grace. It's not by my merit. It's not by my works. So it makes me want to obey. The second thing that it does that I think is so profound in terms of helping us actually obey is it gives us, uh, it, it helps us want to live in the identity of that future. It, wants, it causes us to want to live as the person who is inhabiting that future. Let me give you an illustration of that. If someone was able to come to you at, say, age seven or age eight and say to you, you will be the president of the United States. That, that is going to happen in your life. When you are 45, you will become president of the United States, the most powerful position in the known free world, that, that's gonna be you. If that, was, if that was guaranteed to you and promised to you and told that that was your future, would you have made different choices in high school? <laughs> yeah, my guess is yeah, maybe so. Some of you who answered no, kudos to you, well done, okay? Because <laughs> the rest of us, the answer is heck yes. Right There's something about going like, oh, that's my future. That's the position I'm going to inherit and receive and walk in. That's the authority I'm going to have. That's the person I'm going to be that makes us say, I I want to live in the reality of that truth right now. I want to begin to live as a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old, like I'm going to be the person who is going to be the president of the United States. Now, we have received something infinitely greater than being the president of the United States. We have been told about a future which is far better and is, far, and is guaranteed much more than anyone has ever been guaranteed that they would receive some position of authority on the earth. God has promised, you. let's just think for a moment about the future God has told us about. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, he has told you that he has gone to prepare a place for you Right? A home where you will live forever. He has told us that the place where we will live forever, that part of our living there will be that we will judge angels. He has told us that the place where we will live forever will have no more need of sun or moon because the glory of God will be the light in that place and Jesus will be the lamp. He has told us that in that place there will be no more mourning or crying. He has told us that in the place that we are going to inhabit forever, that there will be no more sickness and no more death. He has told us that in the place where we will inhabit forever, there will no longer be anything that separates us from him, that he will dwell among his people and he will be their God and they will be his people and there will be no sin ever again. It will be done away with and that will be how you spend all eternity. Now, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface because do you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, quoting Isaiah 64? It says, no ear has seen, no, no, sorry, no eye has seen, ears don't see. No eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, and I can imagine a lot, can you? What God has prepared for those who love Him. In other words, what Paul is saying is all that God has revealed, all that He's chosen to reveal to us about the future, these gives us, is, is intended to motivate us to obey, to inhabit that reality now, and to live as people who are citizens of that place now. And we haven't even begun to imagine whatever it is you just pictured in your mind after all that I said, and I only said a part of what he revealed. If you were to go home today and read everything you can find in your Bible about the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal state that we will live in with God for those who are in Christ. If you were to do that and ponder it and be blown away so that you were completely floored and in awe of God, you would not have begun to even imagine or scratch the surface of what it is you're going to get. God gives us those promises and those realities so that we would what, church? Obey. That's number one. Now, like I said, I wanna spend a little longer on that one because that one astounds me. But let's look at what else he says because there's six more things just in this text that are meant to motivate us to obey. Number two is this, he will never take his love away from us. He will never take his love away from us. Look at verses nine through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not a silver, not a silver, excuse me. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now we saw that in an earlier chapter, that exact phrase, my glory I will not give to another. We saw it in an earlier chapter of Isaiah. Perhaps you remember it. So here's what God is saying in these verses, these three verses. He is saying that I do everything for my own glory and what glorifies me most is to not lose anyone who belongs to me. What glorifies me most is to not lose anyone who belongs to me. Now here's what that does. It makes... Not being, so you recognize that God said, essentially, I will not take my love away from you. I will not cut you off because if I did, the people of the surrounding nations whom I want to know that I am the only God, and remember in Isaiah, it's I want to bring them in so that they might inhabit this new kingdom that I'm creating. I want to do that. And if I reject you and cut you off for your lack of faithfulness, they'll look at me and they'll say, he's not that great. He's not that different from any other God. So my glory requires that I do not cut you off. Now, some of you might think, oh, I'd rather him not cut me off because he really likes me. But let me tell you, friends, that if you want to not be cut off from the love of God because of your faithfulness and your obedience, that ain't gonna work. But if you recognize that the most stable promise God can give you is I'll never separate you from my love. I'll never cut you off. And the reason is not because you're great. It's because my glory requires it, and I will achieve my glory. I will bring it about. It is who I am, I am worthy of it. And so I am jealous, God says in another place, jealous for my worship, jealous for my glory among the nations. There is no better hope in the entire world than to say, I will never be cut off from God's love because in Christ, he has promised it and his glory is staked upon it. That he is able, he is able to cause a people who have been washed in the blood of the lamb to persevere unto salvation and to bring them home to glory and that he hinges his own glory upon it is a great comfort. joy and it moves us. It's meant to move us to obedience. And if you notice, I think it's particularly helpful in helping us obey when we are in what Isaiah calls here the furnace of affliction, when we're in the difficulty, when we're in the hard moment, because those are the moments where it's really tempting to want to take an easier road sometimes, to want to say, look, the path of obedience is hard And this furnace of affliction I'm in, I just want out. And in order to get out, I can just go this way. And it seems to me like I will get out faster if I go that way. And God says, no, walk the path of obedience. And if you know that according to Isaiah, that that the furnace of affliction, the difficulty that you're in as a follower of Jesus is not an indicator that God has rejected you or has failed to love you, has cut you off from his love, but rather it is an indicator that he is refining you because of his love. And when you know that, then it becomes much more feasible to walk the path of obedience, knowing that it is the result of God's love, not the indicator that you have been cut off from it. Listen, we are people who need to be and must be reminded that we're loved. We see this in our home. We, you know, I got a two and a half year old son. What does that mean? It means he, he hauls off and hits his sisters, Okay. That's That means at times he gets frustrated and he will throw a punch, all right? You know, he's my kid, so I don't know how strong that punch is, but it's, it's a punch nonetheless, right? And so he throws a punch. And of course, then there's discipline that happens after that. Deacon, sit down. You know, so we discipline. But here's what I see happen almost every time. I think there's probably nothing more important that happens in that entire process than the moment after the discipline has occurred. Because what I can see in his little face, because he's two and a half and he's not cool enough or doesn't have enough of a grid yet to hide it yet, he will look at me and he will want to keep his distance from me because I can see that he is asking the question, am I still okay with you? And really what he's asking is, do you still love me? You just disciplined me and not hurt and I didn't like it. Do you still love me? And the most important thing that happens in every one of those moments is when I get down or Amanda gets down on our hands and knees and I say, buddy, come over here. I wanna give you a hug. I love you and nothing you ever do could make that any different. I love you no matter what. And you just watch. He runs and tackles me in a hug because what, is he, what does that two and a half year old brain know? He says, I've just been in the furnace of affliction, my two and a half year old version of that. And now I, I, I need to know, is this an indicator that you've cut me off from your love? And so when dad gets down on his knees and says, buddy, come here. I want to hug you and hold you and I'm going to tickle you and we're going to laugh together and I love you and nothing will ever change it. You can watch his face. He goes from this uncertainty to this broad grin because that's what he longs to be reminded of. And we're just the same, aren't we? We're just the same. So God's affirmation that he will never cut us off from his love is a reminder. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Talking about his people. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's equating himself with God there saying... If you think the Father's strong and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, then guess what, no one can snatch you out of my hand either because I and the Father are one and we got the strongest grip you've ever seen. You will never be cut off from my love when you are in me, Jesus says. Now, third reason he gives us. Those are the first two. Now the third reason is he says, everything that I have promised, I can do. Now this is straightforward. Look at verses 12 through 16. They say this. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. So there's that here. Listen again. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his ways. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So verses 14 through 16 can be a little confusing, but what he's talking about there is what he's talked about in the previous two chapters, talking about Cyrus, that he's gonna use Cyrus, he's calling Cyrus, and Cyrus is the one through whom he's gonna deliver them from Babylon. So that's who he's talking about in those verses. But right before that, you notice that he also referenced, like, I am the God who made the universe. I I spread out the stars in the sky, I created everything. So essentially what God is saying is, You know, you may have just heard me say that I can make these grand promises about your future. And then you heard me say that I will never cut you off for the sake of my own glory. But perhaps you might then be tempted to ask the question, but are you able to really do that? Are you really powerful enough to keep those promises that you just made to us? And the third reason God gives that we should want to obey is he says, I am strong enough to keep every single one of my promises. That's what he's saying in verses 12 through 16. Nothing can get in the way of me fulfilling the promises that I have made to you. The scriptures tell us in the New Testament that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. In other words, anything that God has promised, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection is the guarantee that those promises will come to pass because he has defeated death. There is no other enemy he cannot defeat. And therefore, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So that's the third thing he gives us. Like if you're thinking to yourself, should I obey? Reason number three, right? God is powerful enough to deliver on every one of his promises. The fourth thing he gives us to help us obey is the reminder that obedience leads to peace, Obedience leads to peace. Look at verses 17 and 18, where he says this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. And then this is my favorite verse in the whole chapter. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. In other words, oh, that you had what? Obeyed, right? Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Do you see? So here's one of the objections that often happens either early in the Christian life or before you've become a believer. We tend to think, and sometimes maybe longer into the Christian life, but sometimes we think that God's commands are cumbersome. That if we are going to obey God, it's gonna mean that we're going to eliminate fun from our lives. You've met someone or you've thought that way, yes? Yeah, absolutely. We all have. At some point we thought, I really want to do this. That seems like fun. God's commands mean that I shouldn't do it, but I really want to. So is God just the cosmic killjoy? And God is really thwarting that idea here. And he does it again and again all throughout Scripture by essentially saying, don't you know that my commands lead to peace? I'm the God who made your life and I know the way it should be lived best. So when I give you a command, it's actually going to lead to your thriving and your flourishing if you will obey it. And if you fail to obey it, you will lack peace. You will lack righteousness and what comes with it. There is joy in righteousness. right? Now that word peace that he uses there when he says, oh, that you had obeyed my commands. Oh, that you would have listened to them then your peace would have been like a river that word peace there is the is the hebrew word shalom and you may have heard that word before it kind of gets thrown around here and there but i want to make sure you understand that he's not just talking about general like lack of anxiety when he talks when that word peace shows up it's a much broader word than that it's a word for wholeness complete holistic well-being is what that word shalom means so when he says then your peace would have been like a river. He's essentially saying you would find yourself in a place of thriving and flourishing. Now he doesn't just mean like prosperity, like material prosperity. What he means is a life that is centered around obedience to the commands of God, finds a sense of well-being and wholeness that does not exist outside of obedience to his commands. So here's the short version of that, church family. When you choose to obey, you choose to walk in peace, shalom. When you choose to disobey, you are choosing to walk in the opposite of that, which is what? It's carnage, it's wreckage, it's 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 to lack peace, it's to lack holistic well-being, right? So you are actively thwarting your own thriving when you disobey God. That's an important thing to remember, because we act like God, through calling us to obey, is trying to get us to, to miss out on something. When if we took the opposite mentality, right, which the world wants to reinforce that idea to us, but if we took the true mentality of the scriptures, we would say to ourselves, oh, every time I choose to obey, even if I limit myself from experiencing something, it's I'm doing that so that I can live a life of shalom peace. You with me? God's commands and obeying those commands bring about good for you. That's what he's getting at, which I love because that's a really just good gift. He didn't have to make it that way, he has chosen to make it that way. The next one, verse 19, the next reason he gives us to obey is that it blesses future generations. It blesses future generations. Verse 19, after saying your righteousness like, would have been like the waves of the sea if you'd obeyed, your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed From before me. So, in other words, what he's saying is your obedience doesn't just pay dividends for you, it pays dividends for who? Future generations. Now that's most obviously seen in parents and kids, but it's true within the church family, right? Like where we as a church choose to obey what God gives us to do and to walk in faithfulness to his commands and to preach the truth of the word and to live as ministers of the gospel, where we choose to do that, we will bless the next generation of people that will be, a, that will be the, the members of West Shore Evangelical Free Church long after we're dead and gone. Now I hope you have a vision for a church that is gonna be here long after you and I are here because I've got one. I've got one of pastors that filled this pulpit for generations. And I've got one of a church that stands on the rock of the gospel, on Jesus Christ, for generations. I've got a vision for this church that goes beyond the well beyond my last breath and well beyond yours too. When you obey God, you need to remember you are not just blessing yourself, although we just saw that, right? and you know, just choosing to walk in peace for yourself and you're not just blessing those immediately next to you. You're blessing generations of future followers of Jesus who say, those people who came before me lived in obedience to God. They lived in obedience to God. Here's an important question I think we all have to ask and it's this, and the, let's put it in the realm of kids. Have you defined what success is for you as a parent with your kids? Like how, so if I were to ask this question, What are you aiming at with the lives of your kids? How would you answer it? I'll tell you how a man and I have chosen to answer it. And this may be part of being a pastor maybe is answering it this way. We have said that success for us as parents looks like our kids loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving his church. It's really that simple. Those are the two things we're aiming at and every decision we make goes through those two things. Will it bring that about? Let's do it. Will it not bring that about? Let's not do it. Here's what I'm afraid of. Many of us as parents are making decisions about our kids' involvement in activities, where we send them to school, what we have them do, the way we handle daily life together, what we look at and don't look at, that we're making all those decisions and we are not aiming at anything. We haven't defined success in the lives of our kids. Or perhaps, and if you haven't, by the way, you're just defining it, in it without knowing you've defined it. And usually you end up defining as something along the lines of, that they get a good job, that they have a good spouse, that they um, you know, have health in their life, whatever it may be. And those, none of those things are bad things. But if you aim at those things, if you aim at those things, you will get something very different than if you aim at other things, okay? It's so important. Now, one of the great gifts, one of the great gifts, you know that as like my kids are growing up as pastor's kids, right? That can be a bit of a unique position. And so you know in a church, especially one our size, that can be a little bit like being in a fishbowl, right? Now, here's the great gift you've given to our family is very seldom has, have I ever felt that you put expectations on my kids that we don't just kind of have for all of our kids, right? That, that my kids are kids, Right? We make mistakes as parents, as Cindy said, we make mistakes, right? We, we recognize we're people who need grace in the way we figure out how to parent and all that sort of deal. So I am so blessed and Amanda and I are so blessed and have, are so thankful that that is very much the church we experience here and we're so grateful for it. But here's the thing that I know, right? Is it's very tempting to when my kids disobey to want to say, you need to obey because your dad's the pastor, right? And this is what that looks like. Right, and there's a lot of people watching. And if I do that, I will crush my kids' souls. But if I know my goal is to help them love God and love the church, then I think about that very differently. So one, I wanna say thank you that you help reinforce that, that I should parent that way. You reinforce me in wanting to parent that way. Thank you for that. But it's so important. The the best thing I can give to my kids, the best thing is not being a pastor who preaches a bunch of sermons. It's not being a pastor who writes books. It's not being a pastor who travels around and is widely known and speaks all the time and everyone thinks, wow, that guy's filled with wisdom. It's not any of those things. The best thing I can give to my kids is that they see a dad who wants to obey God, who loves him and says, oh, I want to obey you because you're so good that's the best gift i can give to my kids just to be with them with them every day right and saying this is what this is how dad tries to obey our obedience blesses future generations and i know you know this cuz you've seen the effects of the opposite right you've seen the lack of blessing that comes into a situation where someone chooses to disobey last two things We'll just list them here. In verse 20, what he tells us is a reason to obey is you will get to tell others about what God has done. You will get to tell, he says, shout for joy. What God is going to do when he brings you out of slavery, when he brings you out of exile. And friends, I don't know if you've ever had the joy of seeing God very clearly do something in your life and then getting to tell someone else about it. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the completion of our worship is when we communicate to others what God has done. He says, you haven't truly enjoyed something until you've communicated that enjoyment to someone else. I think that's really true. There is nothing more fun than saying, you won't believe what God just did in my life. And when you get to talk about that, it's the best. It's another reason to obey. And the last one he says is, you will see me provide in miraculous ways. He says, you remember when I brought you Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then I made water come out of a rock, which doesn't happen, by the way. I provided for you in miraculous ways because when I call you to obey, it will require you to step out in faith. And when you step out in faith, that's risky. And when you're taking that risk, guess what you'll watch me do? Provide for you. I will make a way. I will make water come out of a rock to provide for you when you step out in faith to obey. So those are seven reasons why we should obey God. Yes, church? There's many more. Those are just the ones from Isaiah 48. Now here's what you need to know. We alluded to it already at a couple of different points. But each one of those seven that I just gave you, they're old, the ultimate expression of every single one of them, the ultimate expression of every single one is in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Do you see it? He's the one who has guaranteed our future. He is the one who has, because he was cut off from the love of God, can guarantee that we will never be cut off from the love of God. He is the one who says, because God has delivered me from death, there is no promise he cannot fulfill. Every one of these truths, motives to obedience, finds their ultimate expression and fulfillment in Jesus. So we stir up our faith in him. We say, yes, you have done all of these things. And it stirs up our faith. And as our, as our faith is stirred up, we want to move into obedience because all of our disobedience, friends, remember this, every disobedience is the result of unbelief. All of your disobedience, all of my disobedience is not because I thought something wiser and more profound was out there. It's because I chose to disbelieve. Disobedience is the result of unbelief. Therefore, faith produces obedience. And when your affections are stirred up for Jesus, when you see that he is the ultimate expression of those things and you're stirred up in affection for him, it stirs up your faith and it leads to obedience. Okay. I've taken us right to noon, so we're gonna we're gonna forgo our last song. Why don't you stand and we'll take the we'll have the benediction now. So let me just take 10 seconds here now and ask you to just say this to God. Holy Spirit, wh- you can just say, yeah, you can say it out loud or to yourself. I didn't explain well enough, sorry. Maybe just to say in your mind, because the next part is you're gonna wanna say to yourself, where am I not in obedience? Holy Spirit, where am I not in obedience? And just listen for just a moment now. Okay, Father, thank you that you, you're not playing a game of Simon Says with us here, but that you want us to obey and you wanna show us how. And so we ask you, to show us where we are not in obedience, and then to strengthen us to obey. We don't trust in our own strength to do it, but the strength of the Spirit living in us, breathing new life into us day in and day out, new mercies every morning, is able to strengthen us into obedience. Stir up our faith, Lord Jesus, as we behold you and your completed work at the cross, the power of your resurrection, the joy of eternal fellowship with you one day. May it stir us up so that we might be an obedient people, that we could truly say, we have heard you. We have heard you. So I pray that blessing over my church family. I pray that they would walk with you this week now. May they walk with you in obedience.